So let's turn to Luke 15. And I'll read a couple of verses around verse 11. Uh, Jesus continued, uh, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living, and so on. So he's told them the two stories of uh, the lost sheep and uh, the lost coin. And then there's a sort of break, because uh, Luke introduces it with these words, Jesus continued. He's still addressing these uh, two opposite groups of people, who themselves were divided amongst themselves. There were the tax collectors, the quislings, wealthy, greedy men, and there were the sinners, then the worldly indifferent, who never went to uh, the synagogue and uh, had little regard, only mockery for religious people. And they were the one group there, divided among themselves, and then we are told there were the, the other group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had lost the significance of the law of God by then multitudinous precepts and rule books. And there was no love loss between the two halves of the audience that had gathered to hear Jesus teach. Uh, now, what our Lord does is to speak to them all this famous parable. And one can't pontificate and say, well, this parable is directed to the Pharisees to Pharisaic hypocrisy. And the secret to understand the parable then is uh, the older brother. He's the key that opens up this parable. You can't say that. Surely this is the clearest of all the parables. There's no mystery to the meaning of this incident. Jesus is preaching to a, a cross-section of sinners, the sinners of Aberystwyth, the, uh, the people that are righteous, um, they never get their names in the paper. They are law-abiding. They are family members. They put some Christian families to shame. And then there are the contemptuous and the growing number of young people who find no, no need and no meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's preaching to them about the grace of God and what the grace of God can do for all kinds of men and women. Um, we are too familiar with it, and so we are cool about hearing another sermon on it. But Jesus will deal with it, and he'll, he'll help us, he'll answer our prayers, that uh, there would be a, a, a new insight into the extraordinary love of God from what he says. He chooses to address them by telling them a story, this unforgettable story. It's an oral portrait of God's redemption, with all its validity and finality. The parable is more accurate and more moving and even more profound than straightforward propositions that Jesus could also make and that Paul is making in uh, the letter to the Romans. The picture he paints of this boy is evocative and open-ended. It remains hooked into our memory cells 
long after our explanations of what it means are forgotten. The story itself is what we fall back on again and again. And I want this picture then to remain in your mind long after you've left Alfred Place and long after March 2015 is over. It's the picture of the love of God, an old man running, running and kissing a bad boy and welcoming him home. And so firstly, let's begin with the rebellion of the son. Jesus tells us uh, a boy who went to his land-owning father one day said to him, give me. And it wasn't a brand new coat of many colors that he asked for. It wasn't a stallion. It was his share of the estate. And uh, receiving this, he then he'd forfeit any right he had to anything else his father had. All that remained would then go to his older brother. Let's uh, remember how it worked with families in those days when the father divided the property between the two sons and the younger son turned his share into cash. This would have meant that the actual land, the hill, the valley, the field that he had given to his son would have been valued and divided and the son sold off his share to someone else. And the shame that that would bring on the family would be added to the shame that he already had in saying he wanted it and he was quitting. He was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. The father bore these two blows without recrimination. And to this day there are people in traditional cultures who find this story at this point utterly unacceptable. Totally perplexing. Quite an intolerable and incredible story. Fathers simply wouldn't behave in their culture as this father behaves. He should have beaten the boy. He should have hit him in the face. He said, don't you ever ask me for this again. He should have thrown him out. So there is a depth of mystery that's built into this story before the son even leaves home. The father did what the son asked him. Well, in Western cultures, we are uh, very familiar with teenagers who routinely leave home to move from the countryside to a town, to a city, to leave the rural village to pursue their future in the capital, in the metropolis. Uh, They even go abroad, don't they? Uh, Polish young people, Phil Aberystwyth. And... uh, In Jesus' culture, this would have been seen as something shameful because he was abandoning his obligation to work with his father. His father had worked with his grandfather and so on. The land was carefully divided amongst the tribes and amongst the clans and it had been in the family and he was abandoning all of that. He cared more for his own future than for his father. So we are told the son got together all that he had. He turned everything he possessed, flocks and herds and land, into cash. He was leaving. Once and for all, nothing was left behind. He wasn't coming back. Everything was taken. He had no pleasure 
in talking with his father and talking with his brother about uh, uh, fat stock prices and what they were getting at market for their sheep. The old life was restricting. It was suffocating. It was narrow. He was heading for a place very far from where he'd been raised. In fact, he went to another country. It was a distant country, Jesus says in verse 13. So he was choosing the life of paganism over life in the promised land. He was turning his back on the covenant people of God, just like any rebellious young person today would say, well, that's the last time I'm ever going to church. And he'll have nothing to do with it. He wants no reminders of God. And that is such an illogical and impossible step to take because one can't escape from the omnipresent and omniscient Uh, The God who speaks and is not silent. If one took the wings of the morning and flew to the uttermost parts of of the earth. If one became an astronaut and flew to a distant planet. First thing you'd find was God. God there. God in your conscience. God in your memory. You in addressed the God in whose image you were made. And at three o'clock in the morning, he can wake you. And when you sleep, you dream of God. In that distant country then, the prodigal son made new friends. He spoke another language. He picked up new habits and traditions. He wore different styles of clothes and felt he was smart, I expect. I finally have got away from what I was. I've destroyed the image Of what I was, he thought to himself. Nobody knows me here. I can do whatever I want. Were there any comments from my big brother or from my father without anyone's frown? He answered to no one. And so he proceeded to taste the forbidden pleasures that had long enticed him. It was not that in the distant city he went to weddings and 21st birthday parties, and anniversary celebrations, all such activities are legitimate for all of us. Jesus went to weddings and to feasts, but this young man was unrestrained now in his sensuality, and his spend-thrift extravagance, his motto was spend, 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 for tomorrow we might die. And in that process then, when he hit town and People knew this naive young fellow had money. He soon had lots of hangers-on. Every itch was scratched. Every appetite was satisfied. He deprived himself of no new sensations. He sowed to the flesh, thinking that this would bring the abundant life to him. He never asked, he never lacked companionship, And then it started to disappear. The bag got lighter. The coins went. And he discovered very soon that he'd spent everything. And then there were no more free feasts of roast pork for his cronies. No more hunting expeditions with hired bows and arrows. No free wine, no women to buy. He was left without a penny. No savings, no family to turn to. 
and all his fair weather friends forsook him. On top of that, then a recession hit the country caused by a fierce drought, dust everywhere, unemployment everywhere, starvation through the land, people all over the place looking for food and a job. Uh, Do you have a part-time job? Do you have a full-time job? The boom had become bust. And the dream had faded in the blazing light of the endless burning sun and there wasn't anyone who recognized him. They crossed the street if he came along to them. Those that had slapped him on the back and laughed and drank with him. He could still fall lower still. For a Jew to have anything to do with pigs was bad enough for him to be feeding them as his new companions each day was despicable. Could he fall any further? Yes, he was hungry enough to devour their food. It was bad news. His degradation had now reached a new low. He not only herded the swine, he herded with them. He ate from the feeding trough. Sin is a hard master. He was in bondage to poverty amongst the pigs. What began as a thrill ended in serfdom. He was like a party drinker who became a drunk. He was like a drug addict, a drug user who became an addict. He was like a promiscuous person who gets AIDS. The party had become a prison. And that's what sin does. When it does its worst for men and women. You see in the picture here, do you see the depths to which this boy had fallen? There's no redeeming feature about this man. From the time he asks his father for the portion of his inheritance and heads off as far as he can go from him, right down and down to the field of pigs. We we can't say, well, he had some initiative. It was all in the surface, service of sin. Now you can allegorize this parable. And you can see the prodigal son as the sinner. You can say that he's a type of every sinner who's a long way from God. And then we, before we know it, are saying that every man and woman and those middle-aged women of the utmost decorum, there you are with the pigs and the prostitutes squandering all that your loving father has given to you. And that is not the message of this parable. This man is not every man. This boy is not your run-of-the-mill sinner. This man is how he is described in this parable. He's a rake. He's a fool. He's a drunkard. He's a waster. He's a derelict. He's a heartbreaker. That's how he is. He doesn't stand before us in this parable as the spiritual symbol of an ordinary sinner. He stands in this parable as a symbol of the sinner in the pits. As far as you can go, as low as you can fall, in the gutter, on skid row, on death row, on the waterfront. He is the extreme thrown out of low company. 
if ever there was a son whom a father would refuse, then it would be this boy. If ever there was a sinner whom God would reject, it was this man, this prodigal, this Saul of Tarsus, this torturer, this Jesus hater, this Gadarene demoniac, this John Newton, this would-be suicide bomber, this bigot. He's not an ordinary sinner. This man is on the lowest rung of the ladder, and the ladder is sinking into a cesspit, and it's an inch above the surface, and it's sinking faster and faster. He's on it, and the ladder goes nowhere. And we think of the angels that are seeing this and, and watching and wondering, what's God going to do with this one? They're debating whether he is the worst or one of the kings of Israel who burned his own son. Was he the worst? The wonderful privilege is that this boy had and he had contemptuously dismissed them all. And such depravity embraced so enthusiastically with all of youthful vigor. Is he the worst? Is he worse than Saul of Tarsus? And the angels are discussing it. Will, will, will the Lord receive this one? Will he just pour out a vial of his wrath and consume him in judgment? Will this be what this boy gets? They're talking. And it means then, for you and me, that we can never think, let alone say, someone who has been as bad as me for such a long time, falling repeatedly, could never be saved. We can't say that. We are not unique in our shame. We're not extraordinary in our guilt. We're not so depraved and so abandoned and so far gone that there is no hope for us. Yet here is this man, and he's the worst possible scenario, the most abandoned of men, the cruelest, the most selfish, the most wretched, the most hopeless. Here is the chief of sinners. And yet there was a road from where he was to where his welcoming father was. And there is a road tonight from where you are to where God is. Wherever we might be in the depths of our own abandonment and hypocrisy and intellectual arrogance. And the pain that we have caused to those who depend on us and love us the most. And there is a road, I'm saying, from where you are in human immorality to the holy, holy, holy God before whom the seraphim hide their eyes. So then, let us see the repentance of the Son in the second place. And that is the theme that runs through the chapter. It is not that God rejoices in sinners. It is that God rejoices in repentant sinners. It is there in verse 7 and again in verse 10. So what is this word repentance and what does it mean? And the answer is here in the parable of the prodigal son. What happens? Two or three things happen to him. Firstly, he came to his senses. That's what Jesus says, verse 17. He saw what he had done. He realized where his life was at that moment. He knew where he was at. He was far from home. He was penniless. He was hopeless. 
He was disgraced and discredited, abandoned, and he would die if he went on any longer. And so he came to his senses. And I say again to you, this is not the typical sinner, that this is uh, the worst sinner. It isn't, isn't it true, finally, of all of us, that when we came to God, we came via coming to ourselves, facing up to ourselves, looking at ourselves, looking at our condition. Maybe like the prodigal, our lives bear the hallmarks, hallmarks of of perdition. Maybe our sin is notorious. It's hard for us to see it, but see it we do. It's one of the great marvels of the Bible, this book, which on a literary level is just superb. You'd have thought you know that this man would always have been aware of his condition each step of the way. There are some men so abandoned that you'd look at them and you'd say, they must know what a mess they're in. They must know how hopeless it is. They have to know. The alcoholic must know. The pedophile must know. The drug addict is aware of what he's doing to his health. He he must realize what he's doing to his wife. What he's doing to his children, his friends. He must know. Surely he's come to his senses. But you go to the Old Testament and you see that David. And he'd committed two foul sins, adultery and murder. And that man isn't in the least troubled. Not in the least. There's no contrition at all. You'd have thought that he'd have come to his senses and that he couldn't sleep. And that he just bore the, the guilt and shame of what he had done. And did. sleep went from him for months. That he was overwhelmed with remorse. No. God had to send a prophet with a message from the throne of the universe. And tell him a story and nail his guilt to him. That adultery was a sin and murder was a sin. And he had committed these sins. And there are many men and women here and their sin is staring them in the face. They haven't come to their senses yet. We're standing on the forecourt in the vestibule of judgment. And soon the door will open and we will be summoned through it. It is appointed to us to be judged. And all we have are the baubles and the gewgaws and toys of our materialism, the penance of our career, some property, some legacy of bits of furniture and antiques that we're leaving to others, some memories. That's all. Seven decades. And that's all. And we haven't yet come to our senses. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. We have our goals, our objectives, our chief ends towards which we are aiming the remainder of our lives. And are we going to grasp then at the end of it some glittering price? You remember John Milton, 
that at the moment when we think the prize is finally in our grasp, come the blind furies with their abhorred shears and they split the thin spun line. So what have we got? We lived for decades. What have we got? What have we got? What are we taking with us to God? I don't want to sentimentalize, but many of you can recall the tragic pictures of uh, great former statesmen in their declining years, Sir Winston Churchill, Harold Wilson, Ronald Reagan. They were all those uh, achievements, the ego-reinforcing attainments of uh, outstanding lives. Those enormously influential figures recognized by millions all over the world. All the accolades they had. They received from countless nations gifts and prizes and awards. And yet in their final years, what did they have? What were they in their final years? It seems to speak so eloquently of the insubstantial nature of human attainments because these men had attained. They were once amongst the most powerful men in Europe or even in the world. And yet, at the last, I doubt if they ever knew it. So repentance, I say, begins with a sinner coming to his senses, coming out of the shadowlands of life without God into the bright reality of self-understanding and self-evaluation. The gospel, you see, is not a call to fantasy. It doesn't say to you, know, just jump into the dark. It's coming to the reality of who you are. That's repentance. What else is repentance? Well, he remembered his father. Now, the noun father occurs only once, it's only occurred once in this parable so far, but now in the next six verses. From the 17th verse, it occurs seven times. Father, 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 father. Crucially important. Shorter Catechism tells us that repentance begins with an apprehension of the mercy of God. That's where it begins. You come to believe that though you've been the most stupid man in all the world, wretched and proud and vain, God might show his mercy to you. You know, a man will never repent unless he has hope. It may be only a glimmer. It may be covered by a cloud for a while and then, and then it shines again. Some, some light of hope. But he must have some encouragement if he's to go back to God. I can give you this encouragement. That Jesus Christ once said, Him that comes to me, I will in no way reject. I won't cast him out if he comes to me. That's what the Son of God, the truth, 
incarnate said. I don't care who you are and what you've been, where you spent last night. doesn't matter. If you come, he, he won't push you away. There is that hope there. Let me give you a glimmer. What caused the change in this boy? Somewhere in the prodigal's upbringing, it had been implanted indelibly in his consciousness that whenever things went wrong, and however badly they went wrong, he could always go back home. And he must always come back. He hadn't been taught, if you bring disgrace on the family, don't come back. He hadn't been conditioned in the view. If you let us down, don't bother to come back. If you bring shame on our name, stay away. He'd been told, and he saw this truth in this terrific father that he had. However low you go, however deep the, the abyss, however appalling the degradation... You must always feel, son, this is your home, and here you can return. And I would beg and plead with all parents that they give their children the same absolute and unconditional security. That they know if you and they face the ultimate in tragedy, they can still come home. If they marry the wrong people, then they can still come home. If they get AIDS, they can still come home. If they get pregnant, they can still come home. If they have an abortion, they can still come home. If they end up in jail, they can still come home. They must have. They, they need the assurance. It's one of the most basic elements in Christian pedagogy. And that is how God trains his children. He wants them to exemplify and to reflect his own fatherhood. It gives them this security. And so the son first comes to his senses. And then he abandons the distant city with all its wretched memories. Where can he go? Home. Oh, home. Oh, wonderful home. I can go home. And that's repentance. It is the double turning from the love of the world and the things of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life from all of that making a heap of it and setting it alight and turning your back on the flames that consume all that you stupidly lived for. And you turn from it and you turn to Father Turn to your father. And thirdly, he came with an imperfect faith. The boy turned for home. And he began to rehearse as he went on his journey. He began to rehearse what he was going to say. Uh, I'll see him and I'll say to him, Father, um, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he thought of that as he walked far more slowly than he had walked that same route a year earlier. 
full of excitement then, full of anticipation of the new life he was going to experience, of the joy he would find. He was full of doubt as to how he would be received back home from the family he had abused and hurt so deeply. So he made up this little speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm not worthy to be called thy son. Give me a job. I'll feed your cattle. I'll, I'll clear out the dung from the, the ox house and uh, feed swine twice a week. Just, I, I've got to come home. I had to come home. And those were his thoughts. He would make peace with his father. Those were just his expectations. He'd lost his self-respect. He wanted, he wanted a place. He wanted a space that was his. Not with pigs. Not where no one knew him. But where he could fit in. Back on the family farm. He had no comprehension of the grace of the Father. He had a low view of his Father. His Father was too small in his eyes. And one day, his Father, who often looked down the lane and saw nothing, saw someone. And he saw a figure. And he saw a walk that he knew of a son who was often angry and fed up. And that was the walk. And he knew who it was. And out of the house he came and across the farmyard and flung the gate open and he began to run and run and run on his old legs. And he ran and ran to the boy. And the boy sees the specter of a father getting bigger and bigger, running to him. And he starts his speech as the boy gets near his father. He starts his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and this. And the father cuts him down and just grabs him and hangs onto him and holds him and weeps and shakes with his tears that he's seen this boy again that was lost and he's found he was thought he was dead he'd not heard anything from him he was alive and he hugged him I'll never let you go again he says you don't have to get your your prayer of confession to God spot on you don't have to get the rehearsed speech perfect. You don't have to state it like an actor. You don't have to do that. For God to welcome you. There can be an awful lot of confusion about coming to Christ. And yet God will still answer exceedingly, abundantly, above all, that we ask or even think. And the grace of God is greater than all our sins. Our abundant sins. 
grace is superabundant. And he will grant us our heart's desire. Jesus doesn't say you've got to get the faith absolutely correct. You've got to know it all. It's got to be as firm as a rock. And then you'll be accepted. The boy went pleading with his father to make him a workman, a laborer. His father made him a son. So let's look at the arrival of the son. There was this tremendous welcome to this returning debauchee, this man from the distant country. He turns the corner of the lane and he sees the old house and nothing's changed. The plume of smoke coming from the chimney, the bleating of the sheep. And he is fearful and he's uncertain and he's trying to remember his speech now. He's dreading what the response of the father might be and what sort of welcome he's going to have. And, And then he sees his father running, running towards him. Is he going to hit him? Is he going to cry to him? What, what are you doing? Coming back here. His father saw him as a pitiable figure. The boy so thin. So bedraggled. So undernourished. So wretched. So weak. So filthy. The stench of the swine on him. The shame and the fear written on his face. But he'd come home. It was enough to reach him and sob out his love. And hold the little boy that he'd once held as a baby when his wife gave him to him. Five minutes old. And he looked at him then and loved him. And there was a love that would not let him go. And he kissed him like he'd kissed him then. And that's the beginning of the welcome. As the servants, breathless, come running up behind him to see where their master has gone, he barks out orders to them. Get the best robe. You know where it is? In the box upstairs. And the ring and the sandals, you know where they are? They're in the box too. And the, the fattened calf, it's ready. This is what we fattened it for. We're having a feast. He doesn't snarl at the boy. What did you do with my money? How could you get yourself into such a mess? Look at the shape you're in. Don't you know the disgrace you brought on our family? Do you know how you broke your mother's heart? Don't you know we all, how we all felt when you were away? Why didn't you get in touch with us? Not a word. None of that. And the men come in from the fields and they go and they open their boxes and they bring out their fiddles and their drums. And the women folk are cooking so that the delicious smell of roast veal is in the air and they're gathering and then they start to dance and to clap. Because the son of the owner they thought was dead. He's alive. Little John's back again. He was lost. But he was found. He was found. The little girl 
And we all saw her, Madeleine, her name was. We thought of her parents. We thought, you've lost a little girl. Imagine that that little girl was found. Imagine. Imagine the, the astonishment and the delight and the tears of joy. So they began to celebrate, verse 24. Now you've got this picture in these words. And it's, it's speaking to us of the welcome that God gives to repenting, returning, unbelieving sinners. How he expresses his joy to them. The abundance of it. The overflowing of it. All that we receive from him when we come. When we come just as we are to him. And how God responds. And what God does so much for us just in that moment. He pardons all our sins. Our prodigality in sinfulness. Cleanses, washes. Makes us whiter than snow. There's the wonderful eloquence of the father's silence. He won't look. He chooses not to remember what the son has done. Sin was written over his face. And the taste of the world had just shown itself in the degradation of his whole appearance. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't hurl our past at us. He forgives. He freely pardons all our sin. In that moment, we who are so unsanitary are made clean and pure and white and washed like snow. Your sins, though like crimson, are like white wool. And I'm sure the boy would have wanted to say to the father as they walked back arm in arm together, they would have said, uh, um, um, you know what I did was so, so bad. Uh, don't you want to, can, can I say I'm so sorry for this? Christian does the same thing. He wants to bring up his past. He's worried. If God is not seeing just how bad he's been, he can't believe that... Uh, God can simply consign it all to the depths of the ocean and remember it no more. He'll never retrieve it. It's all forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The past is past. And we are only to see our past sins as forgiven sins, as forgotten sins by the ancient of days. And then we are made sons. It is not that for the first five years then we live in the little house at the side of the stable and we are a servant and after we've done a good job there then we become sons. Not like that. It's not like that at all. Best ring is brought. The best robe. Sonship. The sandals of sonship. Everything is, is given to us. 
the insignia are ours. Slaves never wore, servants never wore those things, only sons. Only sons. Only sons can look into his great loving face and say, Abba, Father. Only sons can say that. Heirs of God. Joint heirs. Everything in heaven. All things are ours on earth. Purchased for us by the son's obedience, even to the death of the cross. And he walked back with his father. And he went through the door into the, into the kitchen. And he never got round to saying to his father, make me a cattle man on your farm. Because his father had made him a son. And we are made sons, heirs of God. Heirs of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And we are in that moment given God, God the Holy Spirit. He fills us, he baptizes us into a body, he seals us. Because we might be tempted to think, I'm prone to wander. I've shown it and leave the God I love and I'll fall again and I can't live up to this honor you've given me now. I'll bring disgrace again on your name. I'll bring new sorrow, new infamy on your name. Can I make it? Can I be a saint? Can I be holy? Can I persevere? Can I keep going? And we bring into the kingdom of God with us, all these worries. And they're all met. We come poor in spirit to him. He fills us with God, the Holy Spirit. All we need to live to the glory of God, he provides for us. All we need to serve God, he gives to us. All we need to do his will, he energizes us to do. That's God's response. We come to him so tremulously. We feel, I've got the weakest faith of a new convert that the world has ever seen. I can't bring anything to him. No bag, no purse. God comes. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. He joins us to his son, Jesus Christ. And we're in him forever. Renewing and fructifying and irrigating our dry lives day by day. We have complete and everlasting pardon. We're given the sealed parchment of our adoption into the family of God. We're given the riches of the baptism of the Spirit into the people of God. That's how he welcomes. Sinners, prodigal sinners. That's how God welcomes them. What did the boy do? As he stood amongst the swine, gripped by the pangs of hunger, stinking of pigs, he made a declaration. He said, I will return to my father. That's what he said. No one ever became a Christian without making a decision. And unashamedly, I want you to make a decision tonight. 
I want you to say, I will set out. And I will go to my father. Make up your mind now. That's, that's what you've got to do. That's what you must say. That is the result of you being brought here in the providence of God tonight. And my preaching this message to you, it's in order for you to say, after all you've heard, the Holy Spirit is telling you, you must say, I am going to go to my father. This boy was transformed. And his transformation first showed itself in coming to himself. I look at myself. My past is unmemorable and grievous. And my future, I can't face it all alone. But I have a father. And he's rich in mercy. And I'm going to go to him. I'm going home. He was determined. And without that, all his thinking and grieving and longing and rehearsals would have been futile. Many a man, a woman, a boy, a girl have stopped at that point. They've come to terms with themselves. They've decided to go to God for mercy. They've going to make that decision. But not yet. So many of you might be thinking, yes, I'd, I'd like to one day. But let me add this, what saved this man was not only that he made a decision. What saved him was this. He got up and went to his father. Where have many of you stopped? At the first point of knowing that you're a penniless sinner. Many agree with that. They go no further. At point number two. I know that God is merciful. Many have stopped there. Or at the third point, I will make my decision. Isn't it tragic that we should come and see things more and more clearly and still be lost? I say to you again that the whole issue rests upon this statement. He got up and he went. Suppose he had all the knowledge of the Bible and all the conviction of sin in the world and all the spiritual hunger in the world and all the moral reformation in the world. If he had not gone home, he'd never have known reconciling love, pardoning grace, the welcome of a father's smile, the hug and the kiss and the sandals and the robe and the fatted calf and the joy of the feast that erupted when he went home.
If you ask me what saved him, then I say it was the abundant pardoning love of the Father. If you ask me what saved him, I would say it was the journey back home. Both of those. It's always both of those. I want you to take that journey tonight. To go from where you are to where Jesus Christ is. From where you are tonight with your doubts and your questions to this wonderfully merciful and loving and kind Heavenly Father. One who's slow to get angry and great in long-suffering. Let's come to ourselves. Let's believe in the mercy of God. And let's make up our minds to go. But please, please go. Please go to God. Have dealings with God tonight. Make the journey from your distant country to the Father's house. Let's start now. No more excuses. No more delays. No more resolutions. No more putting it off. You, you come. You come. As the Holy Spirit takes his word and applies it to your life, your own personal life this night, and energizes you and draws you and brings you and brings you to this God just as I am and waiting not to cleanse my soul from one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot O Lamb of God I come and he's willing to welcome you he's willing doubt no more Heavenly Father bless your word now to us Come, we pray, by your Spirit on this word and apply it to every heart here without exception. That everyone may know that though their sins are great, your grace and your forgiveness, your mercy and your love is far, 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 far greater. Oh, where would we be if that were not the case? Please help us this evening hour to rest in Jesus and his great welcome. Make us Christians for time and eternity. We ask it in the Savior's name. Amen.